Can we have principled politicians? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with James Harrigan. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective through discussion. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is James Harrigan. James Harrigan is Managing Director of the Center for Philosophy of Freedom at the University of Arizona, where he is also an Assistant Professor and is an F.A. Hayek Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. When he's not lecturing, you can catch him as the co-host of the Words and Numbers podcast, along with Anthony Davies from the Foundation for Economic Education. Or you can also find him on Twitter celebrating the decriminalization of various drugs. So, James... I don't know that I'm actually celebrating. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe I'm celebrating. I don't know. I'm I think to... there, was a, there was a tweet that it was about uh, your, your uh, when co- something about Colorado. You said your plane, your plane well, ticket to Amsterdam. Yeah, that, that's right. You I, didn't I, have to I get guess the... I am celebrating. Right. That's right. So Denver has just recently uh, decriminalized mushrooms, right. psychedelic mushrooms. And uh, yeah, I guess I guess that was like a celebration on my part. At least a celebration of, of the costs decreased. Well, there there is that, but I I do enjoy the uh, expansion of human freedom. Right. And let's face it, the mushroom people really aren't doing a whole lot of harm out there. So <laughs> exactly. maybe, maybe we could just leave them alone. <laughs> exactly. They can do their thing in Denver. Yeah, and... or, or or anywhere else for all I care. But at least we've got Denver now as an experiment. Right. And I think one of the interesting things people learned uh, when marijuana was legalized there, it was there first, Um it wasn't a post-apocalyptic hellscape any time thereafter. Life went on pretty much as normal. Right. Uh, as most of us had predicted it might. And and some politicians for sure didn't think that would happen. Yeah. And let's jump right into it then. Sure. As I say, in each episode, we start with a question. So can we have principled politicians? <laughs> that's, that's, that's cute how you asked me that. Um, no, we cannot have principled So we should just pack all this up and Pro- go... Probably. Okay. Yeah, okay. probably. I, th- I think, look, there's going to be an answer at the end of this conversation the, of, of what the appropriate expectation might be from us as citizens and let's just maybe limit ourselves to Western-style democracies or some such thing. Sure. Um, I think there is a correct answer that emerges when you think about these things, but really we've got to dial this one way back and ask a very basic question, and that's what is human nature in the first place, Hmm. right? Because if the public choice economists have taught us anything, and they have, it's that you shouldn't expect politicians to be any better or different than people in the general population. Whatever common sense observations you have about human beings also necessarily apply to politicians. They're no better, no worse, not even any different than what you find in the general population. So that that brings us to, I think, a probably a difficult conversation. What is human nature in the first place? And on that note, you did say that Ultimately, what we could hope for is a structure that keeps these people in check since they're under these incentives, just like the average yeah. person is. Um, does that it, does that structure for politicians do enough then? Does Look, it? It's it's something mm-hmm. right. And in, in, in the American tradition, you're really pointing right at James Madison here, who in the Federalist said, if angels were to govern men, we wouldn't really have to worry about it. I'm obviously paraphrasing here. Right, of course. We wouldn't really have to worry about it, but angels don't govern men. So, well, given that, what can you do? And Madison and the American founders came up with a scheme by which there would be institutional government 
and the institutions would filter a lot of this out to the degree that it can be filtered out, and they, they put their hopes there. He said that parchment barriers, words on a paper, mm -hmm. a constitution, will never be good enough. You have to have ambition, counteracting ambition. And I've always thought that's exactly right. Now, to what degree you can make that work, mm -hmm. that's an open question. But I really want to start with the human nature thing. Okay. Because most people don't think about it much. And when pressed, they'll give you two radically different answers. Even I, after 35 years of very serious consideration of this question, would likely give you two very different answers. On the one hand, I walk around saying things like, well, people kind of suck. <laughs> I say this because they kind of do, right? And here we, we more or less line up under Thomas Hobbes, who discussed human beings and said if we lived in a place with no government, his state of nature, life would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And something about that rings true, right? If unchecked, human nature might well lead us to slaughter each other. And there's plenty of evidence to support this. If you look around the world, what do you see? People slaughtering each other. All right, fair enough. So set that aside and ask, okay, but is that your experience? And almost none of us will say it is. Of course. Our experience, on the other hand, is that human beings cooperate quite a lot. Correct. I'm not walking out of my house every morning expecting to be slaughtered. Yeah, no, that's just it, right? You, you really wouldn't get much done if you thought it was even a possibility. Exactly. And we go on autopilot in the course of an average day, so much so that when I sit in my office in the first few minutes I get there, I can almost never remember anything that happened until that moment. <laughs> I wake up, I get my coffee, I leave, I get in the right. car, I drive to work. All of those human interactions I have are purely institutional. I have no recollection of them. Why? Because I don't have to pay attention to them. They're not in my, my list of concerns. And that tells me a few things, most important of which is that Human beings are, at least where I live and where most of us live, human beings are relatively peaceful and deeply cooperative. All right, so both of these observations about human nature are absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Now it's a different kind of question, right? Now you have to ask yourself how much of one is true versus the other. What's the relative breakdown? What can you bank on? And now uh. there's not a clear answer. Mm -hmm. Because the dual nature of, of human beings is just right there for you to think about. And we do have problems brought about by our nature. There's no way around that. Right. Right. And if that's true, then you should expect to see that play out in our politics. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, you do. Every time you turn around, whenever you look at any political process unfolding in front of you, what do you see? The worst elements of human nature. Do you really see the better angels of the human race playing out in politics? And not so often. At least it's not the thing that our attention is drawn to. So that, that leaves us with the problem of governance, right? The problem of living, not that difficult. We get that taken care of most of the time. But on those issues that really divide us, that we need answers to, we're going to be at each other's throats from time to time. Well, let, let's drill back into something what you just said, though, which is that you're not seeing, you know, the better angels in government. Um, so is it that they are being guided by bad principles or no principles at all? Do people come to the table and say, I'm a nefarious person. I have these bad principles. This is my vision. I'm going to lie in public and yeah. get what I want done behind closed doors. Or so are these bad principles like that guiding people or are there no principles? In, in one of your podcast episodes, you say that they're 
in many cases, not all cases, many cases, just followers. Yeah. So is that, so once again, bad principles or, or no principles? It, it's an interesting way that you're framing the question. I, I think I'm going to try to reframe it in a, in a second. Ahead. But I think it's fair how you frame it. But principle, when you talk about principles and politics, right, it, it, it makes me uncomfortable right from the start. And I think most people cringe a little bit when they hear it. But you're getting at a, a pretty good point because does anybody wake up in the morning any politician wake up and say, how can we do our job such that children are dumber by the end of the day? Well, nobody actually says that, right? That's not, not anybody's goal. When you talk about education policy, the, the goal is pretty clearly that people want to have functioning educational institutions. They just have radically different ideas of what might work and what might not work, right? So on some level, yeah, people are operating according to principle. Mm. Of course they are, right? But... At least we hope so. Uh, yeah, of course they are. Nobody really wants children to be dumber. Right. Right? And that's just the, the easy example to pick. You can mm -hmm. get into almost any other policy universe and end up with very similar observations. Right. But, and, and here's the thing, the thing that, that we don't consider often enough, the thing that when you ask, is it bad principle or no principle, the thing that gets missed is there's probably something else operati operating behind the, the wall here, just under the surface. And what's operating just under the surface is something that the Hobbesian vision of human nature might have taken into account a little better. And that's self-interest, right? Mm -hmm. Politicians are deeply self-interested people. How do I know that? Because everybody is deeply self-interested. I don't think that's a problem necessarily. Mm -hmm. In the same sense as a business person is self-interested we're talking right now. Exactly so, right? And, I, and I'm really okay with that. I think mm -hmm. everybody should be. Um, when I go about my business in the course of a day, do I put myself and the needs of my family first? Of course I do. What else would I do, mm -hmm. right? So if you start with that sort of observation... And then ask the obvious question that doesn't get asked. How self-interested are politicians? And the public choice economists would tell you rightfully so, they're exactly as self-interested as everybody else. Well, if that's true, what's their first goal? Well, their first goal is to get reelected. How do you get reelected? Giving people what they want. What do you do when people want things that are destructive to the the larger society as a whole, if you're even willing to talk about that sort of thing, or things that will have a negative budgetary consequence, right? these sorts of things, they're going to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. So is that bad principle? Is it no principle? Well, it's a different kind of animal right. that we tend not to think of. And the rejoinder that you get from apologists for statism is inevitably and invariably the same thing. We just have to elect better people. They say this all the time, yes, as if it's some kind of time. magic phrase. Well, we've got a few hundred years of history in our pocket. What do you figure the odds of electing better people are? And Hobbes would come along, and I'm here to tell you, there's it's zero. You have no <laughs> chance of electing better people. Why not? Because better people don't exist. What exists are regular people. And regular people act in a self-interested way. Case closed. Well, all right, if we know that, it seems we can probably plan for it. And mm -hmm. lo and behold, James Madison did. And it's what he was talking about when he said, do angels govern men? No. Men govern men. 
Well, that's there's your problem right there. So at that point, getting back to the, the structure question I, showed, I, I brought up before, and I'm happy you, you took me through that so I can bring it back to this point. If you, if we, and of course you can tell me if I'm summarizing your points incorrectly, <laughs> but what I'm hearing is, as you said, politicians, regular people, that's what they are. If this regular person is operating in a framework like a market, let's say there's checks and balances in a different way. We won't go into that, but there is a business person working their self-interest that works. But so that, because that's one framework, but the framework of the political arena doesn't play well as an incentive structure for people that have that same sort of self-interest. So if you take a business like self-interest and bring it into politics, that's where the problem is. Not the politicians themselves, but the actual structure. Yeah, I think it's it's our expectations, right? And every now and then, Ross Perot comes to mind. You get an American politician, typically, who will say things like, elect me and I'll run this like a business. Well, no, you won't. <laughs> it's it's not a business. <laughs> to get elected, he can't run it like a business. It can't be run like a business. Mm-hmm. It, it's the only thing in the world that involves the ultimate form of coercion, businesses never bring coercion with them. Can you run this thing like a business? No. Really, all you can do is make the coercive element more efficient. And I'm not sure anybody thinks that's a particularly good idea. right? That's actually a terrifying idea when you think it through. So this idea that we've got a set of things that can be aligned in such a way starting from a premise that's probably unavailable to us, is the search for fool's gold. We're never, we're never going to find it. When Madison talked about ambition, counteracting ambition, you used the phrase checks and balances, perfectly good phrase. Um, really, the thought here was limiting the damage that can be done. And this is really, underneath all of it, this is the justification for limited government in the first place. Mm-hmm. right? That government is a destructive animal when left unchecked. And the only way to check it is to take things off the table and say these things are not subject to political processes. Right. At, Thomas Paine said, at best, it's a necessary evil. At worst, it's an unbearable one. An unbearable one. one right? and I'm actually quite a fan of, of Paine for that and, and many other reasons. Right. But I think he's exactly right. So when people think, okay, government acts as a magic wand, we'll just get a politician to declare what the new policy is, and if it doesn't quite work out, we'll make fine-tuning adjustments, what are you really asking for here? Mm -hmm. I mean, what are you really asking for? You're asking for government involvement in almost every facet of your life. And here's an interesting thought experiment that you can do. I ask young people to do this all the time, and they're routinely shocked when they realize what the correct answer is. But think about the, the, the space of an average day in your life and tell me what happens that government has no say over in the space of an average day. And you can walk right through the processes of your day. I wake up on a mattress that's regulated. Right. And if you start thinking right. about it this way, it's actually quite profound. I, I get in a car that's I'm licensed to drive. Oh, the car's registered. Let's not get to the car just yet. Okay. Because, oh, here we go. I'm skipping I, ahead. Because I walk down the stairs, right. the length and width of which are all regulated. Correct. You can't just make a new size stair. Right. They're all regulated. Building codes tell you what they must mm-hmm. be. The carpet that sits on top of them, regulated. I walk into the kitchen to get my coffee, literally the first thing I do every morning. The water that made the coffee regulated, the beans regulated, you name it, it's regulated. Mm -hmm. My wife in the kitchen, regulated. 
my children. Right, you're making a face at me right now. I want you to go into she that had, one. Of she had to be of a certain age before I could marry her. There are laws and rules about everything. There are ah, certain, I see what you're saying. There okay. are certain laws and rules about how human beings must treat each other Correct. in the house, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, I often say in a, in a classroom that I'm, I'm feeling a little agitated. I think I'll go home and beat my children. And, and I, the look that I get from undergraduate students when I say this is quite priceless. Right. Um, and, and then I have to explain, okay, no, I'm, I'm not really going to do that. They're all rights-bearing individuals. But then our relationships are deeply regulated by the state. And before you, we haven't even gotten to the car yet. Yeah, I've, I've said I haven't even left to go to yeah, the office yet. They've no, already we, over-regulated. We're, we're really into the weeds right. here before we've gotten there. But the, your automobile... In, unless you own an airplane, uh, your automobile is probably the most regulated thing you will ever own mm -hmm. because literally every single thing in the thing is also regulated. Then you drive over the regulated roads, right? And so on and so forth. Now, notice I'm not saying that any or all of this is stupid. I'm just saying you should be keenly aware of how much control government has over your day-to-day -day life. For sure. Um when you look at politicians, do you think that level of control is warranted and do you really want to give them more? Well, I think we can both think of some names off the top of our head that we certainly don't want having that kind of power and control of certain character types. Let's yeah, say. for me, that list includes literally every politician because they mm. terrify me. Why do they terrify me? Because they have control of the coercive elements of the state. And those coercive elements can and do kill you they can and will imprison you. They can and will fine you and so on and so forth. So if we're right and most human interactions are actually quite cooperative, mm -hmm. it would seem that if Madison is also right and we've got the angels and men problem, you probably want the state to have a relatively light touch or put better as light a touch as is possible while still accounting for the Hobbesian problem that we might well kill each other. Mm -hmm. And we might well. Right. I'm, I'm, I would cheerfully admit that human beings are flawed enough that you probably want to have some element of control over them. How do I know? Well, people keep doing terrible things. So as long as that's true, I'm probably going to be okay with some level of government. I'm not an anarchist, and I don't really trust those who are. Um, I'm a classical liberal, right? So as much as needed, but no more would be the absolute correct answer. And when you deviate from that, when you decide, okay, we have as much as needed, but no more, let's have one more thing. And people agitate to get the thing they want at the expense of others. Right. And then, lo and behold, another group of people sees them successful and decides to do the same. Well, before you know it, the list has grown exponentially. And what do you have? You have government doing all the things, becoming all things to all people. So you would say that the, the founding fathers of the United States did not make the Constitution and the framework restrictive enough then? Maybe, maybe not, right? I, I think you run into a common sense, real world problem. Can you make it restrictive enough that it would keep people from abusing it and yet still yield a condition in which good governance were possible? And, and I don't know. I don't know. It's what a complex question. We could think of some tricks off the top of our heads, maybe make up a fun amendment. But in reality, it's a very complex you're, question. You're always going to be left with regular human beings operating within the context. Mm -hmm. And operating is exactly the right verb here, mm -hmm. right? Because human beings are absolute operators and, and they will find their way around a, a barrier, a restriction with relative ease. Mm -hmm. right? There's almost no way to predict the level of ingenuity that people bring. Right. So really, 
the problem to the extent that we have one, and I think we do have real problems here, the, the problem is always in our level of expectation. We just expect more from government than it can rationally give us. So I always say this, and I don't know that people hear it correctly, but sooner or later, people get the government they deserve. And if you keep asking for more and more and more, you're going to get it good and hard, right? And that's ultimately the problem. And I think that's actually a great place to take a break. And we're going to dive into that exact aspect of the conversation a bit more. We're here with James Harrigan. We'll be back in a sec. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Sabine Elchidiak, Liz Aragona, and Daniel Beer. Remember to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS. And we're back. Cool. Perfect. We are back here on The Curious Task with James Harrigan. Uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, politicians. They're just like the, every person. They're common people, ultimately. I and probably want to qualify that a little bit. Yeah, let's, okay. Right, because so I, I, think I was trying I give to them... roll into the idea that they're, they're just like you and I. If they get into an incentive structure where they can be self-interested, it's a bad thing. But if I give if them too much credit too much when, I, cre- oh, when I tell them that they're no better, no worse than everybody else. Because they are, I think, a little bit worse, right? They wake up every morning of their lives thinking, I want to rule over these other people. And that seems to make them marginally worse. It may, to, to be fair, though, you did say they don't wake up. Maybe they do think genuinely, whether we disagree or not with them on this, they do certainly genuinely think that being in that position is doing more harm than good. Uh, sorry. Well, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Slip. There, there we paging go. Dr. Pack, Freud. Again, pack up the podcast. We're done. Um, <laughs> but no, they must think they're doing more good than harm. Because as you said before yeah. the break, they don't wake up and say, I'm going to make education worse. Yeah, I'm going to make think the economy right. collapse. I, I think that's right. And, the, and the, the partisan differences that we see, I think they amount to a hill of beans for exactly that reason. I think they're differences of approach, not differences mm-hmm. in kind. Right? They're not... Right. And I think you have to assume a certain level of decency. But with politicians, you also have to assume that for whatever the reason, these people think that they're qualified and and good enough and upstanding enough to get their way over the rest of us. And on exactly that note, here's the next thing I want to ask you about. Before the break, we talked about um, the structure, you know, we're trying to hit this sort of happy medium where it's restrictive, but not so restrictive, nothing can be done. Um, So in your, uh, in the the Words and Numbers podcast, the episode where you guys talked about this as well, you said that something happened, especially in American politics, where at some point people switched from being representatives and statesmen and they shifted into leaders. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that and give me your judgment on sure. how it has made everything we've been talking about worse. So I'm assuming that's where you were going yeah. with that, where maybe they were acting under restrictive structure before and they were statesmen. Some bad things happened, but maybe not so much. And now these people have been elevated to the status of what you were saying is these are leaders. Yeah. The office of the president is something that's not looked at as something that is like the president of the golf club you're part of. It's looked at as almost, dare I say, a position of de facto royalty to some people. Yeah, I try not to think about it in those terms, but I think 
it's probably right to think about it in those terms when, when it comes right down to it. And you hit on the exact right differentiation when you talked about the difference between statesmanship and leadership. That's woven into the marrow of this consideration. And if you, if you really dig through the American philosophical tradition throughout the entire founding era, what you'll find if you, and you, you could use the Federalist as a very good proxy for this sort of thing. If you tear apart the Federalist, what you find in that collection of essays, I'll just refer to it as a book. Mm-hmm. What you find in that book is that the word leader is never used, never not once, dis- describing political positions. Uh, the word leader is typically pejorative. The only time it's used in a non-pejorative way is to refer to what we, quote the leaders of the of the previous revolution, mm. right? So that, that's interesting, right? When you think about pol- there were military leaders that they referred yeah, to, and, I know that. and only in the context of the revolution, okay, right? Which is an interesting episode in American history. It's almost impossible for anybody in that period to criticize meaningfully anyone who took part in the revolution, mm-hmm. and this causes all kinds of federal anti-federalist problems in the political debate. And would George Washington have been an example? Uh, oh, people, yeah. people held him in such high yeah, regard sure. that he was the leader of the He revolution. was elected president unanimously. Right. Let's think about that for a second, but but okay. Um, when, when you really start digging in, you see that statesmanship gave way to leadership in the public discourse at a very specific time in our history. And it's right about 1909, 1910. And you start to realize, well, something weird happened around that period. What, what was it? And it's, you can date this line of thought to Herb Crowley's publishing of uh, The Promise of American Life, a book that came out in 1909, which to this day remains the, the playbook for the progressive movement, hmm. right? Every, everything that they still fight about perfectly presupposed in that book in 1909. And from that day forward, you get a very different perspective on governance and what's possible at the federal level. And government then becomes not an umpire to keep things moving, but a, but a tool to accomplish social good. And I understand why people wanted that, but here we are all these years later, and I, I think we have to conclude that it's at best a mixed bag. Did the government, in fact, achieve some good things? Yeah, I think it did. At what cost? There's the question economists like to ask that political scientists rarely, if ever, do. Right. On net, what happened here? That's yeah. The was, it, was it worth it? Would we have gotten here anyway? Right. These are the sorts of questions that economists might ask. They always frame these things in terms of opportunity cost, right? What did you have to give up to get it? Right. Now, if, if I were asked, and I am asked this on occasion, at what point in human history would I like to be living? So I, I would answer right now or any time after right now. I guess the best answer I've ever heard, and I will say this from time to time, is somebody answered that question any time after the invention of anesthesia, which I think is a great answer. Right? <laughs> but if you, if you look at the quality of life, it gets exponentially better year after year after year. And the things that we can accomplish, the things that we're permitted to have to enjoy, I honestly don't know how anybody can claim that life is more unfair or worse now than it ever was. That's crazy talk. You're out of your mind, right? 
Um, how do I know? Especially in, in the well, West. I mean, how do I know this? I have plumbing inside the house. Right. There's heating and air conditioning according to season. Uh, penicillin comes to mind pretty quickly. Right. All these things that make life really great. Oh, anybody in the West that uh, wants to go back to something like the 1600s, their thought process is questionable it, at best. At best. I, I watched a documentary last night about what's in a moat. And I don't want, I always wanted a moat, but now that I know what filled a moat, no, I don't. <laughs> Um, nor should anyone else. These are horrible things. There's people flipping open a tab on their phone to Google search this right now, and I yeah, hope you do. <laughs> I, I do. I encourage you to go look up what was floating about in the moat. Um, but, okay, th- that doesn't really answer the question. Mm-hmm. That's just an observation. Life is much better now than it once was. What role did the political process play in making it better? And now we're referring to the leaders from the 1900s Correct. onwards. Correct. These, are, these people were elevated from statesmen to leaders, Correct. especially and, in the public eye. So and, what role did they play? Well, not as much as you might think, right? And when you start digging in issue after issue after issue, I'll throw one out there that I think people can identify with because it happened so, so recently. Mm-hmm. Um, how did gay marriage come to be the norm? In the United States. And Canada? Yes. It's, it's and great. Canada. And Canada. There you go. <laughs> there Quick you aside. Go. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to throw a superficial, strong man answer. You can take it. Someone's going to say Obama. Yeah, no, not, that's, that's absolutely incorrect. Of course. And anybody who lived through the period knows that's incorrect. Because exactly. really, what did you get? You got, over the space of 10 or 15-ish years, you got a growing acceptance of uh, gay society. Mm-hmm. Right where straight people listened to the arguments that gay people made about how they were being excluded for and mistreated, and they said, you know what, they've they've got a point, and we actually started to consider that, and a bit of a headwind developed, and all of a sudden things started to change. Mm-hmm. And politics, come to find out, is a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. And one of the things you, per, people, I should say, that you mentioned on your podcast when you touched on this, these things was uh, Hillary Clinton is an example of somebody who took sort of this headwind and yeah. switched, switched one sides, of her yeah. really entrenched stances, which I believe was, no, marriage is between a man and a woman. Yeah. And it, she certainly wasn't a leader on that front no, in terms no, of not like, trailblazing all. that issue. Not at all. And, and her husband, Bill Clinton, former president, is often seen as a great defender of, of gay rights now, but that's largely because he's a Democratic politician, not because he was actually a defender of gay rights then. He had the Defense of Marriage Act during his administration. He signed that. Mm-hmm. right? So there was a sea change in public perception on this matter, and the politicians got in line behind what the public wanted after that, that had manifested. So how do we reconcile this idea that a lot of people have, that politicians are leaders, when in reality what we're talking about here together is that they're in fact followers. Followers, right. And Are they just leading in the sense that they're putting your, the royal, your opinion on display yeah. for people to affirm in a voting booth? Is that where we're at, where we go option one, I'm affirming that I believe in that, or option two, I'm affirming that I believe in this over here instead. Th- Where are we at with the system? I think there's a big part of that going on ju- just below the surface. I guess we're always just below the surface here. <laughs> um, but I think there is a lot of that sort of thing going on. But 
the you know I, I speak in terms of the American people because I am one mm-hmm. and I understand it. I, I I I work with the assumption that the Canadian people are not much different. Because not much. I would say that uh, maybe, and this could be totally biased in my judgment. I think it's it's not as bad, but it's getting there. Where we are at the point where people are looking at at these folks that are in government in Canada right now as as exactly what we were talking about before. These are these are leaders. We're going in. We're affirming what we believe yeah. in in the voting booth. The system is, of course, a little different. It's not our public. It's parliamentary system but nevertheless i think like you said it's not that much different now yeah i I think you know by and large people are people anywhere you go right so you're going to get broad similarities no matter what Mm -hmm. but when you look at what politicians have accomplished a lot of it almost all of it is at the level of public relations so they build themselves this way and people just believe it well there's almost no evidence to suggest that this is the correct way to understand them. And mm. it's and you know if if you don't want to talk about gay rights or gay marriage, we could talk about race in the United States, which is probably our most difficult and thorny issue over the space of our history. Mm-hmm. Right? And in the 1950s, um, the argument was, well, the Supreme Court finally acted in Brown versus Board of Education and that's what made the critical difference. But there's no real evidence to support this. Mm. And indeed, if you look around, what do you see in the data? You see um, American blacks doing sequentially better decade by decade from the close of the Civil War until the eve of Brown versus Board of Education. You see them doing considerably better. You see black migration patterns, especially in the wake of World War II, from the, the southern rural regions to the urban north. All kinds of things happening. Integration was already occurring on a natural, organic level. Now, was it happening quickly? What did, would it make us happy with 2019's perspective? Mm-hmm. No, it would not. Right. Would it make somebody hopeful from an 1859 perspective? You bet. Mm-hmm. Right? So did the Supreme Court make this ruling? Yes, it did. Right. Was that the important part? No, it was not. Right. And, that that and, was another step in the chain of development. Yeah, and, and not to digress too much into the economics of it, but it was in fact some of these, quote, leaders that we've been talking about that were actually leading the charge against this change. They were largely reactionary. A lot of uh, labor laws, for instance, came into effect specifically to keep, as an example, black labor out of certain markets. I mean, that, that's the minimum wage in the United States, actually. It was an anti-black measure. Um, in no small part, right? And but so as, this is what the, the, the so-called trailblazing leaders yeah, were up to. It. They weren't leading the change. But I would submit to those who are listening that any broad social change that has occurred that you naturally attribute to government action, take a step back and ask yourself, where's the evidence to support that conclusion? And you'll almost never find it. Will you never find it? No, I think that's crazy. All kinds of things happen when governments act, some good, some not great. Right. Um, but by and large, when you look at the sorts of things that change the social fabric, well, you find that social fabric doesn't change overnight. That's a glacial change that happens through the culture. And here you'll always find politicians giving their imprimatur at the end. Right. Not actually getting us moving at the beginning. They're not the first mover. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that is actually conformable to what I said about how mm. people generally live in the first place. They cooperate. Right. And where did the great racial, gender, 
sexuality advances in the United States, at least where did they happen? They happened where the rubber met the road. When people who were on the back end of some pretty bad behaviors said things in public like, we deserve better. Mm -hmm. And the moderate majority would sit back, think about that for a minute and say, yeah, okay, you Mm -hmm. kind of do. And then things would start to change. Right When Martin Luther King said that it was the white moderate he blamed for the black position, I think he was appealing exactly to this line of reasoning, mm. right? Because it's those, it's those mass of people in the middle. You're never going to get over on the racists. But what about all the rational people who know better? Mm-hmm. Well, can they speak out? And in fact, they can and they often do. They often need a, a bit of an elbow to the ribs, right? But that comes through social things, not political things. And that's something I want to touch on. When I heard you speaking about this before uh, in the Words and Numbers podcast, it occurred to me: well, so many people, of course, are focused on okay, like, like you said, we got to like better people. You said at the beginning of the, this episode here, it, this is what a lot of people are focused on: what, who's the right person we can put into power to set this right? Based on all everything we've been discussing, is the right move, in, in your opinion, in fact, it, stop caring about that and yeah. start trying to convincing. You're, you know, the average person, your fellow man and men and women, the people around you uh, of what the right thing is. We use our powers of persuasion. And then as we were discussing, the politicians will naturally follow that. Would the idea be to drop this this whole idea uh, that, you know, we're going to elect a savior and reaffirm this in the voting booth, the the better angels and and just say, no, we're going to convince each other that kind of quote activity and activism, these kinds of of political movements are are more fruitful. Yeah, I I think without question. Now, whether that can ever happen or not, hey, I don't know. Um, Politics has become, for lack of a better term, a a team sport. And you root for your team whether you like the players or not, right? Because, hey, it's your team and that's how it goes. So, you know, every couple of years we see, in the United States at least, the two main parties lining up nominating various people to run for various offices and and the electorate repeating the talking points that get pushed down from party headquarters with precious little thought or discussion or consideration. Well, that's probably not the way to go. But I'm careful when I I talk about what we need, because if I were to come here and say what we really need is an invigorated politics in which all people consider all the things on the table and really take part, that's no better than saying we need to elect better people because I'm asking for something that never existed and will likely never exist, right? Okay, so you're saying it's not that it wouldn't be ideal, it's just that we are practically talking about something that, forget it. it. It might be ideal, but electing better people might be ideal too. I'm with Kant on this, ought implies can. Um, If I'm going to say that we ought to do something, it should at least be plausible. plausible, Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm willing to work with plausible here. I think that's about right. Um, And it's not, right? People don't know the issues. That's why we have representative government in the first place, to absolve people of understanding every little part of, of every issue. Look, I make my living talking about political things. Mm-hmm. There are any number of political issues that I don't understand nearly well enough to bother offering an opinion on. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a second. I have a PhD in this, and I make my living doing this, and yet I will not write about healthcare. It's too complicated. People spend their entire lives studying that one thing, and they don't get it right. You have to study a lot to know a little. Yeah, that's right. So what are the odds that the people will be well-informed on a broad variety of issues? Mm -hmm. Probably not that high. 
So let's maybe not ask them to be that. Let's, let's work with practical then. Do you think it's at all a practical hope to have people at least um, shift their attitudes towards politics to at least take it down a step is what I'm trying to say. We don't have leaders and gods above us. We have representatives. Maybe we can get people down one notch again. What do you think about that? I think that's really a fruitful way to go on this, right? It's really fruitful. Be careful what you ask for because you might get it and you probably don't want to get it. You don't want a federal Leviathan running every element of your life Mm -hmm. because it will do it poorly. We We don't want someone to you know, a total solution to everything. It's the first word in totalitarian, right? You I mean, know, I think that, 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 that's not incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a little disconcerting when you think about it in those terms. But really, where did responsibility for one's actions go? And we don't talk about this nearly as often as we should. But if you're looking to the government to answer every problem in your life, I think definitionally that means you're not looking to the right person, which is you. It's your responsibility to take care of yourself. And if you're if you're looking for a politician to answer that sort of question, you've probably done very idiotic things in your life. And I'm more than happy to say it. I think more people should maybe take a little bit more ownership. Maybe it's your problem, not our problem. That, th- that things aren't working out well for you. There are some things, though, that I think people naturally... Uh feel that they need to take refuge in a politician for. Not that I agree with it, but just throwing it out there. For example, something that they couldn't solve with personal responsibility would be, um, quote, and I hate when people say this, but the economy. <laughs> the you know economy. what I mean? I can I can work hard to get my education. I can apply for a job. I can have that job. But where the economy, quote, goes, I don't have control over. Where the geopolitics of the world goes, I don't have control over. And of course, I, I don't agree with it. But I think that here we can at least have a bit more sympathy for the person that feels so helpless in that situation that they might want to throw their faith behind a politician. You right. you go on the world stage, Mr. President, and manage this crazy geopolitical situation that I hear about every single day on Facebook, and I'll just try to bring home money uh, for myself and my yeah. family if I have one. I, I don't want to give the wrong impression. It's mm-hmm. not that I don't have sympathy. I absolutely do. And look, I'm on the hook for living my own life too, making decisions that impact mm-hmm. all kinds of people in my my little tiny orbit. That's difficult, but let's take an American example. I'm more more conversant in them. Um, Okay, I need to plan for my retirement. Sure. They've been taking Social Security out of my check since the day I got a job. What not, do you f- not much different in Canada. Yeah, what it, well, it might, might be a little worse up here. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, <laughs> but what do you figure the odds are that Social Security will be an ongoing concern by the time I'm ready to retire? Because I'm working with the assumption that it'll be long gone. Mm-hmm. Probably only in uh, in practice, not in name. But the, the currency will be so inflated by then that whatever I draw out of it will be functionally worthless. Mm-hmm. How do I know this? The people who run Social Security keep telling us it's going to be functionally bankrupt. They don't use the word bankrupt. It'll be insolvent in about 12, 15 years. Of course, it's a nice euphemism. Well, you might approach insolvency. As as long as the government (laughs) can keep printing money, it'll literally never be bankrupt. It'll just cease to work in any functional way. Um, Ask the Venezuelans. They'll tell you all about it at this point. But this is what you're left with, right? Mm. These sorts of things. Now, can I agitate for government to fix this? Well, sure. But what are the odds I'm going to get a different kind of answer from the government than I've always gotten in the past? Nil. Uh, Approaching zero. 
right? And the government doesn't change the way it does things because it only has one arrow in its quiver. It's coercive. That's all it can be. Well, I think I'd be better off planning for my own retirement mm -hmm. and so on and so forth with every other issue I can think of. Does that mean there should be no government? No, I don't think that at all. There are any number of things that are perfectly common to the lot of us that probably are best addressed in that way. That list, though, is much smaller than the list of things government does try to address. Right. Right. And when it became all things to all people, beginning roughly in 1909 with the dawn of the progressive movement, well... I mean, what's the old phrase? A government that can give you anything you want can take anything you have. And of course it can. Of course it can. If it's omnipotent, you should expect certain omnipotent behaviors to emerge. And they're always dangerous. Right. And so, and, and you've stopped me a few times, rightly so, when I might step into an area where I'm talking about what's impractical. But I want someone listening to this episode to leave with what's, of course, we have to it's not gonna be perfect. What, what's, what's James's formula? I mean, if you could say what, what's attainable, uh, you kind of nodded your yeah. head and, and really quickly agreed. I think when I said, maybe we can notch people's idea of a leader back down to representative, that might be achievable in, in our lifetime through, through political actors. And then perhaps as well, getting people into the mood where they like more of a restricted government. Is that, are we approaching yeah. a better formula at least with I, that? I think we could, uh, mm -hmm. there, there's no natural reason why we couldn't get there. I typically say, that government's about what we want, need, and can afford. We're pretty good at knowing what we need. We're great at knowing what we want. And we're terrible at knowing what we can afford. Right? And that's just how it shakes out. So if you really want responsible government, the first thing I would tell you is never spend more than you take in. Because you're going to be naturally limited to, what you, to the level you can tax people by what they're willing to put up with. Right? There's a natural limitation on taxation. Mm -hmm. Okay, whatever it is, live with it. My, my straw polling, the public opinion research I've dug into, indicates to me that most people will willingly and cheerfully accept about a 25% level of taxation. After that, they start getting cranky about it, and I could understand why. Unless they're the direct recipient of some sort of benefits, of that, course. No, that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> but by and large, most people are about willing to deal mm -hmm. with about 25%. Well, okay, mm -hmm. that tells me something. Yeah. Because now spending has to match that. So take GDP, multiply it by whatever people will accept, and never spend more than that. Now you have a mechanism by which you can rank order your priorities. And you can figure, okay, I want the military more than I want schools, more than I want retirement, more than I want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Down right down the list till you hit the amount you need. And then you have to say, well, we obviously don't want this enough. The trough's empty. That's right. If we wanted it more, it would have been higher on the list. But notice what I'm saying. I'm saying be responsible. I'm telling people that government should exist by and large according mm -hmm. to the same rules they do. Right. Because... I want a house, I want a car, I want a vacation to Monte Carlo. Guess which one of those three I'm not getting this year. <laughs> I'm not going to Monte Carlo right. because that's frivolous and I can't afford that. And I have to take into account income and outflow. Mm -hmm. Well, instead of Monte Carlo, we'll all rent a James Bond movie from the Red Box and sit in the living room. I can afford the dollar, I can't afford the trip. Sacrifices right? must be made. <laughs> that's right, but that's not unreasonable. Mm -mm. When we say it in the context of government, though, people say, oh, yes, but people will starve. Well, you haven't made a positive argument as to how we can afford it. What you've told me is that you don't want people starving. 
Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me how people skip right right to that. It's right. back to what we were saying is government politicians. It's evolved in people's minds to such a, a ruling, leading um, force in our lives that people will say, oh, you don't want government in this area? You must want insert negative yeah, effect here. Yeah, you don't want go, public education. Go you live want, in Somalia. Right. <laughs> yeah, go, go, go there. You don't want public is, education. You want dumb children. You don't it, want this much right. money going to that road. You don't want us to drive on roads. And, that kind of. And of course, this is silly. Yes. Of course, it's silly. Um, but you never get anywhere pointing out the common sense of an argument, right? This is just silly. Donald Trump became president in the United States and on the campaign trail said that he would balance the budget and pay off the debt in eight years. Well, paying off the debt in the United States, it's so profoundly large that it would take you 100 years to pay it off. Where is it at? It's a few trillion now? 22 trillion. 22 trillion. And, And in... That's, that's a lot of money, just in case anyone missed it's, that. <laughs> it's so much that it's incomprehensible. Yeah. Um, but we, what, we lose sight of that when we get to billions and trillions. It's, yeah. tw- it's only 22 trillion. Yeah, but that's a lot of billions and a lot of millions. We've got a bad comma effect here. <laughs> yes. Right? L- large numbers are, are such that you can't comprehend them. But last year, we had the biggest deficit in our history. So obviously, things are only getting worse. And when asked about it, Republicans say, but Obama... Well, that doesn't really answer the question. And Republicans, yeah. and you've mentioned this before, that these are supposed to, supposed to be the people that are the party of economic principle, aren't they? That was the story as as it came to all of us, but it's probably not right, and I think we have demonstrable proof that it's not. But for the past year now, we've spent 25% more than we've taken in. Well, that's unsustainable. And if you think that's sustainable, you're crazy. Right. Well, right. one only has to think of their own household or their That's own finances right. to get the picture. And you always know that people are about to jump off a very tall building when new economic theories emerge to justify your behaviors. So when the MMT, modern monetary theory, came out. Oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> and a bunch of people said, oh, the government can spend as much money as it wants. And to be fair, that's probably the, the first two sentences they read about. Then they shut the article. They were happy with that. Yeah. No, perfect. Right. Perfect. Yeah. There's the Facebook yeah. headline. We're good. No, you absolutely can't because here's your proof everybody knows that the united states government can't issue a check to every citizen for one million dollars well why not i thought we could have whatever the government wants right no no, you can't with within the bounds of reason maybe for a while sure but if you're running deficits at a 25 percent clip year in year out and you have a debt that's now eclipsed 22 trillion which is just the stated debt take into account unfunded liabilities mandates of, th- of things like social security like medicare now the debt is between 100 and 220 trillion that's so big that the variance in the debt is incomprehensible mm-hmm. wh- what the debt might be so look we can't live like this forever and this is the net result of living in such a way that doesn't take into account what you can afford it only takes into account what you want. And back to the structure that these politicians are operating. And I think you mentioned that there was no way that the people who created this framework in the United States could ever foresee no. something like this. I think you just no. they mentioned that offhand, but maybe you could elaborate on that yeah, for a bit. Because we assume they did their best to create some sort of structure that kept yeah. people in check. That's what the separation of powers was about. That's what right. principally this was supposed to be about. And I don't think, as you, sorry, as you were saying, you didn't think that they could have foreseen this level of irresponsibility. No, the, the, the level level of irresponsibility here is is astonishing. Is that just the trap of politics? Concentrated benefits, dispersed costs? I think so. I don't think there's any way around this. Um, But if you wanted to follow the framers' advice, 
if there is a way around it, it would have to be institutional, right? You would have to give the people who exercise the power of the purse some very powerful motivation to be reasonable, to be responsible adults when they do it. And I think there is a way. Um, people often talk about how a balanced budget amendment would get us most of the way home. And I think there's something to that. I think ultimately it's incorrect, but there's something there. I don't think it attaches... Why ultimately incorrect? Well, because I don't think it attaches the interest of the individual to the outcome well enough. So Mm. if we had the mandate of a balanced budget with a punitive measure, now I think it would work. So if politicians added to a debt level, if they were sent to prison, I bet they would be better about that. That'd be a strong incentive, I would say, or disincentive. Wouldn't that be interesting if they actually had to follow rules like that? Mm -hmm. They would need something akin to that, some motivation like that, which attached their personal well-being to the outcome. Because what they've learned now, their personal well-being is, in fact, attached to the outcome. Mm -hmm. They give away the farm every year and people vote for them. They get nothing but benefit from doing the wrong thing. Um, where's the drawback for doing the wrong thing? And it has to be decisive, immediate, and probably pretty draconian. And -hmm. if you could bring that to bear on them, their behavior would change overnight. Didn't they used to call that revolution? They they did, but we've become, you know, kind of complacent over the years. Mostly (laughs) because of mostly because of the things we talked about earlier. Life is actually quite good, right? Most of us have outstanding lives, comparatively speaking. Yes. Um, and as long as that's true, the thought of revolution is a little ridiculous, right? When the American when revolution... When you think of your personal situation, of course it is. I yeah. can speak for myself, obviously, and I think a, sure. a, a revolutionary call, other than being an academic and fun discussion on the side, as, as a seminar we might have together, is, in practical purposes, for sure not. Life is so good that I can drive home at the end of the day and drive through a magic hole in a building and have somebody hand me a hamburger. I can do this from the comfort of my air-conditioned car. Revolution. Well, you can sit at home now, actually. And, and, and actually, <laughs> I have the, night, the nice people bring it straight to the house. Right. right. You don't even have to get out of your pajamas. It's kind of astonishing. Yeah. And as long as that's true, revolution is probably not in the offing. But Skip th- the dishes isn't going to anger yeah, people th- enough to... Think, <laughs> think about it this way, though. When the American Revolution happened, no taxation without representation was the rallying cry. What was the level of taxation at the time? Somewhere between 1% and 3%. Uh, it was functionally nothing. It was just the very idea. <laughs> that they're taking enough. 3% of something, up yeah. to 3% of something, here, here and we, you can't even vote. On here it. we are a little more than a couple hundred years later, and my level of taxation in the United States, Canadians are going to be angry that it, it, it's as low as it is. But my level of taxation in the average level is about 30%, 35%. All in, federal, state, local. So it turns out that represent, uh, taxation with representation is no picnic. Right? We, we might have just been better off keeping what we had over the long term. But it was about principle back when. And I think we have to elevate our political discourse back to the level of principle. Can that happen? It can. How do I know? It did once. Is it likely to happen? Yeah, probably not. How do I know? It rarely happens. So there you go, right? When things get really bad, is there a way to improve? Yeah, but you have to stick to principle. And can people understand that? They can understand principle a lot more than they can understand 
policy. Mm -hmm. I don't expect them to become policy experts. I expect them to be principled. So there's the challenge, I think, moving forward in organizations like yours, like the ones I work for. What do we typically talk about? Principles. Mm -hmm. Because really in politics, that's what matters. So what do we try to do? We try to educate the principle. Yeah, and I think it certainly is, as I've mentioned a few times already now, uh, it is practical to think of a situation where we encourage and persuade other people through these principles to stop thinking of these people as leaders that are going to solve everything. Yeah, I'm not terribly sanguine about the short-term possibilities of my approach, but I do know that the only way anything good ever happens is if this approach works long-term. And, you know, revealed preference is another thing those economists are always talking about. My revealed preference is to do this. So obviously, I think it's going to work at some point, right? I wouldn't do this if I thought I was wasting my time. So I think there is some success that we can have. It, it's probably just going to take a while, and things probably have to get worse before they get better. Okay, I'll, I'll play that game. I'll play that long-term game. Mm-hmm. That's fine. It's not the quick, easy answer that most people want. But human nature doesn't admit to quick, easy answers. Right. So there we go. And, and conversely, just to balance it off a bit, I want to make a bit of a challenge. At the same time, throwing our hands up in the air and say, this whole political process, it's, it's lost. All politicians are corrupt. There's no sense in me studying anything. There's no sense in me getting involved. Nothing's ever going to change. That, that would be the other extreme. And that would probably not be the right approach either, correct? Because no, then, yeah. then we're not doing a good job. If, if people feel that after they listen to us, we're not doing a good job persuading yeah, no, anybody. I think that's right. And that's deeply counterproductive. And mm-hmm. we can look at example after example after example where regular people made all kinds of critical difference, mm-hmm. right? Indeed, I think that's the only thing you see once you start looking at it. Right. So I, I think... Because this is becoming a more common... Uh, sentiment, I feel at least from what I've seen, a lot of people do feel a little helpless when it comes to these issues. And and instead of trying to make them better, uh, and quite understandably, so they feel like I I can't even touch this. This is ridiculous. It's beyond me. I I forget it. That's what a lot of people and 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 follow that line of reasoning one step further, because it's in every politician's interest to infantilize everyone he can infantilize, because it keeps people dependent on them. Well, this pushes them farther away from representative that's to right, leader to leader. Right. And it, maybe it would be better if we told all of them to go pound sand a little more than we do. Right. And I, I know that sounds flippant, but it's really not. And part of being able to do that is being an independent human being who walks in standing on your own two feet, demanding the rights you have. Right. Um, and the rights you have never infringe on the rights of others. Mm-hmm. Right. And there you go. So. Is it possible? I I think clearly it is. Uh, We have all kinds of examples throughout human history and indeed our own North American history. Mm -hmm. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. And I think that's actually a really good place to stop because we've we've run out of time, but we always like people to tie it up at the end of the episode. We've talked about a lot of things and I think you just put a great finer note on it, but we've discussed many things. If someone's going to hear a snippet of you only at the end of this episode... What do you want them to take away from this episode? Can we have a principled politician? And if not, what do we do about it? We can absolutely have principled politicians, but only to the extent that we demand them to be principled. They will not deliver that in and of themselves. We have to want it first. Great. I think we can end it there. Thank you very much for speaking with me today, Thank you. It's been a great pleasure being here. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining me and James today. See you next time. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. 
Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.